Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Today on Eco Report, environmental correspondent Zero Rose asked Hank Duncan, the city's bicycle pedestrian coordinator, about recent changes in local infrastructure to address e-scooter misuse and other challenges relating to access for the disabled and providing alternative transit options for Bloomington residents and visitors. And now for your environmental, <coughs> environmental reports. Columbus City Utilities is planning a solar project in its wastewater plant with an estimated price tag of $2.3 million, though a tax credit is expected to lower the cost by around 30%. We are looking at installing solar panels on our property at the wastewater treatment plant, said utilities engineer Ashley Getz. The array will be located west of the plant on just 2.5 acres. According to CCU Executive Director Roger Kelso, the solar array will be located in the field that its utilities, on its utilities property with no need to acquire additional ground for the project. The one megawatt system will allow CCU to cut energy purchasing at, it, at the plant by 30%, Get said. It's expected this will save them $140,000 for the first year. Savings in the future years will depend on how much the cost of electricity increases over time. There's hope for the Indiana bat. Yay! A colony has been found in Vermont. The bat's habitat, a 301-acre public forest, was conserved when the colony was discovered nearly 20 years ago, just before the onset of the devastating white nose syndrome. While bats elsewhere have struggled to rebound, the Indiana bats in Hinesburg, Vermont, appear to be thriving. To wildlife experts, the colony's resilience is a testament to how conservation and good land management can help restore a species on the brink. When the bats were discovered in Hinesburg in 2006, it marked the farthest point north and east that the species had ever been found. Members of the Hinesburg Land Trust and other conservation groups worked with state and federal officials to purchase the land which was being sold by a longtime farming family and succeeded in 2007, permanently conserving the bat's habitat. The deal came just before white-nose syndrome began spreading across the region and decimating the local population. The fungus attacks hibernating bats, waking them and sapping their stores of energy and fat. Since arriving in Vermont in 2008, the disease has killed nearly 65% of Indiana bats. Where biologists once counted hundreds of the species, they were tallying fewer than 50. So when biologists went to catch, release, and count the bats in Heinsberg, they were shocked when many instantly flew into their nets. Researchers caught between 700 and 800 that night. 
The story did not comment about whether the bats had developed immunity to the white-nosed fungus or whether they had lived isolated from other colonies. The New York Times reports that a group of young people in Montana won a landmark lawsuit on Monday when a judge ruled that the state's failure to consider climate change when approving fossil fuel projects was unconstitutional. The decision in the suit, Held versus Montana, coming during a summer of record heat and deadly wildfires, marks a victory in the expanding fight against the government support for oil, gas, and coal, the burning of which has rapidly warmed the planet. As fires rage in the West, fueled by fossil fuel pollution, today's ruling in Montana is a game changer that marks a turning point in this generation's efforts to save the planets from devastating effects of human-caused climate chaos, said Julia Olson, the founder of Our, Our Children's Trust, a legal nonprofit group that brought the case on behalf of the young people. This is a huge win for Montana, for youth, for democracy, and for our climate. More rulings like this will certainly come. The ruling means that Montana, a major coal and gas producing state that gets one third of its energy by burning coal, must consider climate change when deciding whether to approve or, or renew fossil fuel projects. The efforts of 20,000 high school students in Indiana did not fare so well. During the recent legislative session, their proposed legislation on climate change was read and comments were taken, but no vote was allowed. There's a desperate race to create a protection zone around the rapidly melting Arctic ice cap. The ice once protected the Arctic Ocean from threats, but as it melts, it exposes the sea to fishing, shipping, mining, and pollution. Would a marine protected area help secure this fragile ecosystem, or is it too late? The Guardian reports that when the Arctic explorer, Penn Haddow, had to start swimming from ice flow to ice flow rather than walking, he experienced for himself what scientists and indigenous peoples of the North have long known, the floating sea ice which used to reliably cover the Arctic Ocean for most of the year is disappearing. But for how long? The minimum extent of the ice in summer is dropping by about an eighth every decade. In June, scientists reported it is already too late to save the summer ice, foreshadowing a completely open Arctic Ocean for the first time since humans made the first stone tools 2.6 million years ago. As it melts, it invites in ships, offering them the chance to sa shave thousands of miles off common routes to exploit the ocean's largely untouched fish populations and dig up minerals on the seabed. Without the ice as a natural barrier, the central Arctic Ocean, an amoeba-shaped area of water spanning more than one million square miles off the coast of Canada, Russia, Greenland, Norway, and the U.S. is open territory. International waters are beyond any country's jurisdiction. However, a patchwork of recent treaties, including a U.N. treaty on the high seas, agreed on June 19th, is providing new means of protecting the water column from chemicals, noise, and traffic the seabed from fossil fuel exploration and mining, and fisheries from over-exploitation. WFHB and ECO Report have been calling for a marine sanctuary in the Arctic for years, primarily because it is the only remaining area in the northern hemisphere where cold water species such as codfish, lobster, and king crab can find refuge. Haddow, 
through his 90 North Foundation is among those fostering that cooperation with the aim of trying to designate the entire middle of the Arctic Ocean a marine protected area, an MPA. He wants no fishing, no shipping, no mining, no oil and gas. Quote, this is a rest of life mission for me, end quote, he says. With an MPA, he adds, the Central Arctic Ocean is in danger of becoming an unprecedented free-for-all. The likely outcome of global warming is an ice-free Arctic year-round. This could happen within the lifetime of your grandchildren. And now we hear from Hank Duncan as Zero Rose inquires about certain concerns and controversies affecting the design and implementation of measures taken to facilitate multiple modes of transit and reduce pollution by reclaiming public space for those not using automobiles to travel about town. We have with us today Hank Duncan, Bicycle Pedestrian Coordinator for the City of Bloomington. And uh, we're going to talk about a few issues relating to halt transit. Um, I know that the, uh, I think it's Board of Public Works, are they the ones that approved the uh, re-upping of the um, contracts with the e-scooter people? Yes, they approved Bird and VO in Lyme was continued to this upcoming meeting. Was uh, there any restrictions put on that or anything? I think I saw a clip of someone talking about the kind of problems that have come up, but that's not necessarily going to be dealt with during this contract cycle. So in terms of new regulations for the cycle, that's something that city, that city staff pushed through Board of Public Works earlier this spring. Um, within those essentially are things to help achieve the two goals of better rider and pedestrian safety and pedestrian accessibility. So in terms of accessibility, we have implemented various uh, corral parking corrals in the city, uh, especially within downtown area. Right? I think as of today, we have 64 corrals now implemented within the downtown area. Um, if you are a rider and want to start or stop a trip within this area, you have to be in one of these corrals to do it. Otherwise, your trip will not end. Will will <laughs> the never-ending ride, your trip will not end, so, you say? So essentially, when you get on the, if I if I am a rider and I want to and say by city hall um but i don't park my scooter by city hall or by a corral by city hall then on the app the trip will not conclude so i will the meter keep exactly so okay, to so actually in your trip you have to be in a parking corral um and operators have a few different ways of making sure that happens but essentially on our end those areas are geocoded, so you have to be in those areas to actually end your ride. And they will also see the visual elements of the crowd with those delineators and stencils on the ground, so they'll be much more likely to actually park in a corral instead of possibly blocking the right-of-way. So there is still um, the ability to leave them in other places, though? I mean, there, there will, people always have the ability to leave something anywhere, but 
for the for the writer's sake now unless they want to be fined by the company and have a very very expensive trip they will have to park their vehicle in one of these corrals out of the way from everybody okay and that's across all the services and companies yeah okay and uh, yeah that had become somewhat of an issue about uh, accessibility blocking ramps and things like that and uh I attended that uh, public meeting you did on the Beeline Trail, um, talking about the Allen Covenanter Greenway uh, pushing through uh, a new connection in McDole Gardens neighborhood. And you guys were discussing uh, the attempt to comply or, you know, to make it accessible, if not technically adhering to ADA guidelines. Has any of that been further fleshed out? So there hasn't been any further progress since that meeting, but essentially what we've done is um, gone in, read the ADA standards, and then um, spoken with one of our representatives of the city, Michael Shermis, who works with the CCA and is essentially our accessibility advocate within the city, and talked with the design, talked with him about the designs and what is feasible and most compliant with ADA standards, especially when the natural curvature, the natural gradient of the ground is above that 5% ADA mark. So we are trying to get it as close as possible and make it as, as accessible as possible for everyone in Bloomington. And the idea is that if you added more access points as required, they would be make it all more steep. So essentially, so what you're speaking to is the amount of flat landings on this ramp. So the connector itself, if you um, put a point at the highest, at the farthest western part on Madison and Allen, and a point on Morton and Allen at the bottom of it, that gradient straight down is about eight to nine percent or so. So with that length, there are requirements of numbers of landings that we put in this ramp. Um, but the more flat landings we put in, those mid sections that have to go uphill, the steeper they become. So if you put, say it's 8% straight away without any landings, if you put six landings in there at five or six feet in length, that might go up to 11 or 12% in those other sections. Versus if you put in three landings, it might go up to eight and a half or 9% in those other sections. So that's the, that's the balance that we're trying to strike of having enough landings to make it accessible, but also making it so those mid-section rises aren't absolutely steep. Yeah, <laughs> kind of a catch-22. Considering the safety as you know juxtaposed against the accessibility, mm -hmm. um, the uh, Hawthorne Greenway plan, I believe, is still meeting some friction from people in the neighborhood, and there's been postponements. What's the uh, state of that, and what kind of problems are coming up with, and is, is there some kind of a compromise being worked out? Yeah, so. We brought the Hawthorne Weatherstone Neighborhood Greenway to the Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Commission uh, last week, and there was a great discussion, lots of good questions asked by the commission members, and 
due to the length of public comment, um, the commission voted to postpone the rest of that agenda item. So commission dis commissioner discussion and the vote until the September meeting. So we got through the staff presentation, uh, commissioner question and comment, public comment. And now all we have left to get through is more commissioner discussion and the vote of it. And uh, in terms of what you brought up with compromising and what we can do to both make this a safe corridor to promote biking and walking for all residents in Bloomington and appease the residents in the project area. Uh, if you look at the design that we first proposed back in fall of 2022 compared with this design now, we listened to a lot of what those folks said and we took out a good number of traffic calming features, took out some bump outs and speed cushions. So now, um, I, I looked at it this morning, there are about, there's there's fewer than one traffic calming item per block at this point. And there, there's no more than one item per block on any block. And that's already a, a pretty mellow street. And those are the ones you're targeting for greenways, since they're already kind of a low vehicle uh, traffic situation. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Huff and Weatherstone, it is a... Um, essentially the perfect north-south corridor from IU's campus to the south side of Bloomington. And it's already relatively low traffic, relatively low speed, which is what we want to uh, promote biking and walking on. And so we are essentially trying to put in more infrastructure, some bump outs and speed cushions like we've done on other streets in town, on Allen Street, East 7th Street, West Graham Street, to make this a priority bike ped corridor for all residents who want to travel north-south through Bloomington. And uh, there was the other, uh, what is it, Henderson bike lane mm -hmm. that uh, I saw some coverage about that uh, was talking and other people just uh, colloquially or, you know, anecdotally um, talking about the Henderson bike lane situation being a bit confusing. If you could describe, you know, what, what the problems are that people are having? Was it, uh, it's been made a one way, I think is the, is the situation or it kind of switches over from one side to the other or something? So, so the area that you're speaking of is South Henderson Street between um, Hunter and Smith. And the, so that section that was just redone is to promote the, the east-west connection between Hunter and Smith. Uh, because that is a currently a signed route for a neighborhood greenway and it is in the transportation plan for a future neighborhood greenway with some of the infrastructure that we just talked about uh, implementing on Hawthorne and Weatherstone and other areas in town. So current or before this project was implemented, that area of Henderson was one way northbound for traffic, two lanes of car traffic. And so for any cyclist traffic wanting to go eastbound on Smith and connect to Hunter, they were unable to do through. They were unable to do so through Henderson. They had to make a bit of a roundabout way to get there. So essentially, what this does is it provides a southbound lane of bike traffic to allow the eastbound connection. So if I'm going east on Smith, I can go south on Henderson for a block, 
and then continue eastbound on Hunter without having to uh, go out of my way. And is there some uh, opposite travel with car traffic? Yes, so there is still a lane of of car traffic going northbound, and there is one lane of bike traffic going southbound. It, it's similar to uh, on Smith down by College and Walnut. There is a a contraflow bike lane down there as well. Yeah, that at least gives the bicyclists a chance to see whether the motorists can see them or not. Mm-hmm. One other thing that will be brought to the Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Commission in September is the East Morningside Neighborhood Greenway. Uh, we worked with the residents there to develop a design to help calm traffic there and really complete that east-west corridor from downtown and the seven line through campus and then on the seventh and longview greenway all south or all east crossing smith onto morningside to get you over to park ridge east brewster's ice cream state road 46 that area so with with that coming to the commission and hopefully with their approval that will be constructed next year and complete that full east-west corridor through bloomington this is In Nature. I am Juliana Daly, and today's In Nature segment is about the endangered bobolink. Perched on a grass stem or displaying in flight over a field, breeding male bobolinks are striking. No other North American bird has a white back and black underparts. Added to this are the male's rich straw-colored patch on the head and his bubbling virtuosic song. Though they are still fairly common in grasslands, their numbers are declining. They are small songbirds with large, somewhat flat heads, short necks, and short tails. They are related to blackbirds or orioles. Bobolink means rice eating and refers to this bird's appetite for rice and other grain. They breed in open areas across the northern United States. They prefer large fields with a mixture of grasses and broad-leafed plants like legumes and dandelions. Although bobolinks are numerous and adaptable, their U.S. population has been declining since 1966. They were put on the 2014 State of the Birds watch list, which lists bird species that are at risk of becoming threatened or endangered without conservation action. The main reason for the bobolink's decline is land use change, especially the loss of meadows and hay fields. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we are all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Archaeology Day at the Morgan 
County Library is scheduled for Saturday, August 26 from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. View artifacts and exhibits while learning about Indiana archaeology. There will be flint napping, spear throwing, and identification of artifacts. Take a herping hike at McCormick's Creek State Park on Monday, August the 28th at 10.30 a.m. What is herping? Join the naturalist at the Nature Center to help you gain an appreciation for our native amphibians and reptiles that call the park home. Enjoy a blue moon, a blue moon super moon wetland hike with the Sycamore Land Trust on Wednesday, August 30th from 8 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. at the Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve. Gather to witness the moon rise of the second full moon of, in the month of August. Registration is required at sycamorelandtrust.org. Learn about magnificent marsupials at Brown County State Park on Saturday, September the 2nd from 1 to 1.30 p.m. Meet in the Nature Center Auditorium for a presentation about North America's only native marsupial, the opossum. Learn about the many misconceptions surrounding this creature. Drop by the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake to do some cloud watching on Saturday, September 2nd from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Meet at the campground playground to cloud gaze and learn what different types of clouds can tell us about weather changes. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at MPI Solar Energy. Com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noelle Herhusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noelle Herhusky Schneider produced today's show. Okay. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. Okay. For WFHB, oh. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshlick. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.
Thank you.